praise God. I, I, I praise God for this church very much. I am, me and Mallory both are incredibly, incredibly thankful, uh, for this church. Uh, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. We continue our uh, journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5 to uh, verses 13 to 16. Uh, one of the most uh, incredible experiences of my life was when I went to Western Canada in 2013 and I got to walk on a glacier. Uh, now I had not only never seen a glacier before, but uh, so so not only to see one in person, but to be able to walk on it was like a really incredible experience. I mean, it was awesome, you know, just this massive, basically, river of ice that has been there for thousands of years uh, was really, really awesome. But it was also a, a somber experience because in order to get to the glacier, you have to walk on this short trail. And along the trail, they have signs posted. And the signs had years on them. So when you started, maybe this, I forget where it started, but maybe it started with like 1890. And then it, and then you walk a little bit further and then 1900 and you walk further in 1920 and then you walk further in 1940. And what the signs were doing was, was showing where the glacier had been at that time and how over time the glacier had receded. Uh, I'm sure. For the past seven years, it's receded more, and they may have added a 2015 sign. Thing is, if you look at pictures of glaciers then and now, it's really crazy. There's a, a particular glacier in Alaska that there's a photo taken of it in 1909, and this glacier dominates the landscape. I mean, you can't, you look at this picture, you don't see anything else, you just see glacier, boom, in your face. But 95 years later, in 2014, if you look at the uh, picture now, you would never know there was a glacier there. It's, it's completely gone. Never have imagined that it was there to begin with. I think that Christian witness is the same. Because if we're not careful, we make small compromises to our witness here and there. And, and over time, the change is imperceptible. It's slow. You'll, you, if you would never know that it was happening if you're sitting there watching it. But over time, if drastic measures aren't taken, it will be as if it was never there. Like a glacier, it will be as if Christian witness was never there to begin with. Compromising our Christian witness has devastating effects. If you look at recent history, there's lots of examples to choose from. Uh, one example that I always think about was is Bristol Palin, uh, Sarah Palin's daughter, who traveled around the country teaching children and young adults about abstinence. And what happens when she's on the trail other than she gets pregnant while she's teaching about abstinence? And so for many people, it's not just that Bristol Palin is now a hypocrite. Her entire message collapses, making it even more difficult for that message to be recovered. People think it's a sham. 
or if you take, that was several years ago, if you take a more recent example, Jerry Falwell Jr. recently resigned from Liberty University after scandal, after scandal, after scandal. And so he's not only brought disrepute on the name of his dad, Jerry Falwell Sr., and on the university, but he's brought disrepute on Christianity as well. When Christians live the Beatitudes, we were in the Beatitudes last week, when Christians live the Beatitudes, they're not done in secret. Right? When we live the Beatitudes, we don't become monks. We don't live in retreats. We, we live them so that the world can see them. In other words, Christians have a witness, and our witness is the most precious thing we have. If we lose our witness, if our witness fails, or if the world can't see our witness, then that's as if we were never there. The Christian witness is something that we protect and seek to live out at all costs. It will cost us our lives, it will cost us our status, it will cost us power, it will cost us comfort and security and peace, but our witness is the most precious thing that we have. That is exactly Jesus' point in these four verses. Four short verses, and Jesus' point is that as people who live in a new kingdom, the point is for other people to see this kingdom in us and through us. As people who live out this kingdom, the point is for other to pe- for other people to see this kingdom. It is our witness. But there are two very important aspects about our witness that that we must hold in tension that that Jesus lays down here. So turn with me in your Bibles and let's look at Matthew chapter five and read verses thirteen to sixteen. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The first thing that Jesus calls us is the salt of the earth. And so that means first, we must preserve with our witness. We must preserve with our witness. When we think of salt in modern times, we normally think of enhancing taste. Uh, and, and even though the same thing is true of Jesus' day, right? Salt did enhance taste. The main thing that people would have thought about when they heard salt was a preservative, right? Salt functioning as a preservative. And so what's amazing to me is that people existed for thousands of years without refrigerators. That's an amazing feat to me. Because uh, it's funny, it's funny, the things that change when you're adult. Because when you're a kid, you dream about going to the toy store. Uh, and when you're at the toy store, you dream about all the different toys that you see and having all the different toys, R.I.P., Toys R Us, am I right? But when we become adults, 
Uh, one of the things that Mal and I loved to do was to go to Best Buy and like drool over the refrigerators. I mean, we would open there. This one has a compartment for your meats and your veggies right here. You can control the temperature. This has a screen that tells you what you need to buy. I mean, we would spend so much time looking at refrigerators. It was, it was, it was some awesome refrigerators. Uh, and, and I, oh man, I especially dreamt of having a fridge where all you had to do was put your glass up to the dispenser and you'd get a nice cool glass of filtered water. Right now, as far as refrigerators go, we're living the dream. I can, I have this refrigerator now. I'm living, living my best refrigerator life right now as we speak. Get water out of that dispenser. It's awesome. But some of you here today may not have even grown up with a refrigerator. In fact, I talked to my stepdad, who my loving referred to as Mr. Jackie. I talked to him this week and asked him, because he grew up without a lot of this stuff. I mean, he grew up without electricity, without running water, and he didn't grow up with a refrigerator. And I was asking him about how they kept stuff. He's like, well, we, we can things, but you know, you guys probably grow up maybe with an ice box, right? You have this box and you buy your 15 pound, 20 pound block of ice and, and you put your food in there. But if you live in Jesus's day and you live in like this hot, humid climate or a hot, dry desert or a hot, climate, hot, dry climate, like a desert, then you need a way to preserve your food because if you don't, your food's not going to last very long. And the main way that they did this was with salt. Salt was a preservative, still is a preservative, to keep uh, food from going bad, from getting spoiled. If you have heart problems, right, you don't eat your fast food or your processed food because it's got a ton of salt in it. This is a... Never mind. Uh, so anyway, I was going to say this is a message for uh, Don, but he's not here. So when Jesus calls his people salt of the earth, he call, he's calling us the preservative of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preservative of the earth. So why does Jesus, why does he start to talk this way? As I said in the introduction, living the Beatitudes isn't, something that's to be done in secret. Like, you can't live the Beatitudes just in your closet. The the Beatitudes are meant to be seen. Now, remember that when I mentioned that Jesus is teaching from the mountain, Jesus is, is occupying the place between heaven and earth. So just as Jesus occupies the place between heaven and earth, so His people occupy that space. In other words, what this means is Christians, the church, is to show the world exactly what heaven on earth means. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? Jesus is sending His followers to show show the world this is what heaven on earth looks like. What that means is we are to be salt. Preserve it. And what Jesus is saying is that when his disciples are in the world, they are the preservative that keeps the culture from moral and spiritual decay. We preserve. We keep from being 
rotten. We keep corruption at bay. As Christians live the Beatitudes and seek to live the fruit of the Spirit, the natural corollary of that is that our neighbor and our culture would be blessed. It's like when you move into a house, your house doesn't isn't just about you, it's now about your neighbors too. So if you mow your lawn and keep your house maintained and clean, it not only helps the value of your house, but it helps the value of your neighbor's house as well. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he said, the spirit of the gospel causing attention to all that concerns our neighbor's welfare would promote sanitary and social reform. And so the leaves of the tree, which are for the healing of the nations, would work their beneficial purpose. But here's the thing. We can only preserve culture with our gospel witness by preserving our witness. Jesus says it like this, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now the ESV does translate Jesus as saying, uh, if, if salt has lost its taste, but the idea behind this word is, is, is worthless. Right, If salt becomes worthless, or if it becomes impure, how can it serve its purpose? So, if you dump your salt on the ground and it get mi- gets mixed up with sand, this salt is not good for anything. Just leave it on the ground and let cars run over it and people walk over it. Is it good for anything anymore? No, it's, it's not good for anything. It's, it's as if the salt was never there. So what Jesus is saying is that it is possible for the church in culture to be compromised. Listen guys, the church in culture and history doesn't always get it right. The Crusades, the church didn't get it right. Nazi Germany, the church didn't get it right. And so what this means is that Christian witness is Paramount. What the lost and watching world sees absolutely matters. Absolutely. Sometimes you'll hear that the LGBTQ crowd accuses Christians of being hateful. Sometimes I wonder if they have a point about Christians. I'm not saying Christians will never be opposed or ever be persecuted. Jesus already told us that that was going to happen, right? Just in the last couple of verses, verses 12 and 13. We are going to be persecuted. But what I am saying is that we can't always assume that opposition is because of the gospel. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we're just jerks. Sometimes it's the fact that we've compromised our witness. So, what are the ways that the church in culture might compromise its witness? Well, first first and foremost, it could be outright sin. It could be that the church uh, in some ways is living in outright sin. So, just in the past five, ten years, we've seen Christian leader after Christian leader fall after scandal after scandal after scandal. And this, this harms 
the Christian witness. Second, it could be with, with false or heretical teaching. A church that loses the gospel or distorts the gospel because of false teaching is no church at all. It's not salt anymore. It could be idolatry in the church. And I think we, as the American church, have specific idols to our culture. Comfort and security, protection, or politics are all idols that erode our witness. It could be, it could be religion or moralism without Christ. I don't remember the author who said this, but he said, he made a point that the devil uh, would be so happy with a town of people who are nice to each other, of people who never broke the law, who went to church every Sunday, if Christ was not there. Christ was not preached. So what happens if the church compromises or loses its witness? Jesus says it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Our witness is the most precious thing we have. If we know our Bibles and recite the gospel and go to church every week, but if we walk back on our principles or allow our witness to erode, it will be as if we were never there. Our witness, how the world sees us, how the world sees Christ through us is so, so important. In fact, Craig Blomberg, who wrote a commentary, he said it like this. He said, believers, who fail to arrest corruption, become worthless as agents of change and redemption. Christianity may make its peace with the world and avoid persecution, but it is thereby rendered impotent to fulfill its divinely ordained role. Here's the irony, he says, it will thus ultimately be rejected even by those with whom it is sought compromise. So church, no matter what, we must guard our witness. If there was something that we could do to prevent persecution, but it compromised our witness, we must not do it. If we could accomplish all the good in society that we desire, but along the way we trade in our witness and our integrity, then we have shortchanged society. Church, we redeem society and we preserve society with our witness. Look, I know masks are a big deal right now. Nobody really knows what they do. But here's the thing. Whether masks do anything or not, I don't want my neighbor to think that I don't care about them. So if it came down to the fact that masks don't do anything, but my neighbor thought that I was putting their lives in danger by not putting on a mask, I'm going to put on a mask for the sake of my neighbor. For the sake of the witness of Christ. It's about our witness to a watching world. And it matters. It matters.
it was pointed out to me this week that salt is useless unless it makes contact with something. So you can't enhance flavor and you can't preserve something unless the salt is making contact with what you want to preserve. It's, it's not doing any good if it just stays in its container. So what this means is that the church is to make constant, close contact with the lost world. And so on the other side of preserving our witness, we must secondly attract with our witness. We must attract with our witness. Now, fall is, is one of my favorite seasons, but it is, it's hard for me to decide between fall and winter. I love the winter months, especially snow. I grew up in Mississippi. We didn't have much of a winter, so I really, really like cold weather. And Christmas. I love Christmas too. But the thing about about winter that really starts to stink is like end of January, February, where it's just dark all the time and, and really cloudy and everything. Like, like it's a psychological, scientifically proven fact that darkness just makes people depressed. Uh, in fact, I remember reading about this one town in Norway. Right, Norway is is way up north, so they already get few daylight hours during the winter. But then this one little town is in the in this valley, and it's surrounded by mountains, and so they don't get any sunlight at all. So for five months out of the year, they're just in darkness. So what they decided to do was to build this gigantic mirror and put it on top of a mountain, so that this mirror reflects the sunlight on the town. So, for what was once five months of darkness, the town now enjoys sunlight year-round. The world is a dark and gloomy place. Death and disease and crime and corruption and loss and suffering and muscle degeneration and financial loss are all a part of this world. And the thing is, we try to live and act as if this life is okay, right? Everything's okay. We try to act like this world is the best that there is. And so we're like those creatures, those weird fish that live at the bottom of the sea. They live so deep that there's no sunlight that gets down there. And we don't know what light is until someone shines light on us. Jesus tells his people in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Light is light is a precious thing. Light gives warmth and coldness. It's nutrients for plants. I mean, even for us, we go outside, we absorb vitamin D, and it it boosts our mood. So in Jesus' day, they didn't have light bulbs, right? These days we have lights everywhere, and and now the, the line between night and day is actually pretty blurry because we can live in the night just as if it was daytime. There's just so much light. But what Jesus is assuming here is that there is no other light shining in the world if his followers are not shining. There's no light shining in the world besides his followers. So if that town in Norway doesn't have mirrors to get light, to reflect the sun, then they don't get light. If followers of Christ aren't light, then the world's not going to know what light is. 
if someone doesn't light a candle in Jesus' house, there's not going to be any light in the house. Let me tell you something about light. I am really thankful when I have a light in the crawl space under my house. I'm really thankful for light. The idea, uh, what I'm trying to communicate in the idea behind what Jesus is saying is that light is a relief and it's obvious. Like, when I'm in the crawl space, there's no question where the light is or where it's coming from. Yes, light is used for exposing things, but it is also used to attract. It's exactly, exactly what Jesus says in the next verse, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So why? Why? So that you can expose sin and bring sinners to their knees. No, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The point for light to, is for light to be seen and for light to be felt. What, what Jesus is saying is that our witness is supposed to attract. Our witness is supposed to be winsome. In Lord of the Rings, when Sam and Frodo are in Mordor, they are in the darkest place in all of Middle Earth. There's no light, there's no hope. There's no water. There's nothing in Mordor. There's just no relief. But at one point when they're in Mordor, Frodo falls asleep and and Sam looks up into the sky. Tolkien wrote this, that there, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark, dark, uh, above a dark tour high up in the mountain, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty far far beyond and forever beyond its reach. That's the kind of light that the church is supposed to be. It's meant to be a, a relief. Cold water to thirsty tongues. Food for hungry souls. Paul calls this in 2 Corinthians, being all things for all people. He writes in, uh, sorry, it's 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9. For though I, I am free from all, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I become as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, no, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is preeminently concerned with making the gospel attractive to people. To make it winsome. That's the idea about behind wearing masks. I want people. I, even though I, I, you might say I have every right not to wear a mask, I become a servant to everybody who wants to wear a mask so I might win 
mask wearers to Christ. Paul asks for in Colossians for prayer that that I may make the gospel clear as I ought to speak. Guys, Paul knows the gospel. He knows how to articulate the gospel. We've been going through the book of Romans. One of our big conclusions is that Paul is smart. He doesn't need help in telling people about the gospel. But he asks for clarity, but he needs help making it clear. What Paul wants in his life and in our lives is that we should make the gospel clear. Not muddy or difficult to see. We need to be careful how we wield the gospel because if we wield the gospel in anger, then what people are going to see is an angry gospel. To use an example, there was a famous actress this week. I've heard of her name before, but I'm not super familiar with her, but she lost her baby in a miscarriage. She was overcome with grief and she shared about it on, on social media. But the thing about this actress is that she also um, has supported Planned Parenthood and, and the choice to get an abortion. So people, Christians, began to shame her because of that. Saying things like, maybe you'll learn your lesson, or this is what you deserve. Listen, as much as we want her to change her views on abortion, She's not going to come to know the gospel through shaming or scoffing. The gospel doesn't come clothed in shame. What she needs isn't shame. She's got enough already. She needs the gospel of grace coming from the mouths of people of grace. It is our duty as a church to attract people to the gospel. To make it winsome. To show them a Savior who is good and compassionate and patient and caring and full of grace and mercy. Yes, we call sin, sin. Yes, we call sinners to repentance. But we are pleading with people to turn to a Savior who is worthy of their repentance. Turn to Jesus because He's good for your repentance. church, we must attract with our witness. Far be it from us to repulse people from the gospel because we are acting in a way that is inconsistent with Christ or Christ-like character. Far be it from us. Jesus says here that we must let our light shine before others so that they can see our good works. He's not thinking of like a vague good work where you walk down the street and you see a poor widow begging for money and as you bend over to give her $5, you make sure people are watching. It's not what he has in mind. He's actually thinking of the Beatitudes. That's because whatever you do should be clothed in a poverty of spirit. It should be clothed in mourning and in meekness and in hungering and thirsting and mercy and purity and peace. Because it's, it's as we live the kingdom reality of the Beatitudes that people see any of our good works and give praise to God. 
thing is, though, hanging on to virtue, maintaining our witness and living out the Beatitudes is slow work. We won't see the results that we want to see. We won't see the results in the time that we want to see them. We'll lose plenty of battles. Yes, it's slow work, but it is God's work. It is God who brings about the increase. It is God who produces the fruit. Peter tells us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be repentant. It's slow work. We lose a lot. We'll be persecuted for living the Beatitudes. But it's God who gives the increase. It's our duty. What our duty is as his people is to preserve our witness and to attract people with our witness. Preserve our witness and to attract with. Jesus is building up his church and the gates of hell will not overcome. And he brings his church, he brings it about through his meekness and his gentleness and his grace. Listen, Jesus is already attractive. Jesus is already beautiful. Jesus is the light that we shine. And so we want people to see him and be drawn to him. He is the eternal Son of God. He is the one who is eternally beloved by the Father. He is the, the treasure and the beloved of heaven. He's the, the timeless God who entered time as a man. He's the, the God-man who lived and, and worked and healed people of disease and demon possession and sinful lives to bring them healing and peace. He's the one as, who as God-man bore our sufferings and our griefs. He's the God-man who lived the life that we could not. And He's the God-man who died the death that we so rightly deserve. He's the God-man who bore on His shoulders your sin, your bitter thoughts, your vile deeds. Your adultery, your lust, your sinful anger, your gossip, your slander, your stealing, your coveting, your unbelief, your pride, your self-righteousness, your compromising was all laid on the one who never compromised. And he is the living Savior today. And it is our duty, our privilege to shine the light more and more and more on the one who is already beautiful, who's already attractive, who's already beloved. So let's preserve our witness to this Christ and attract with our witness to this Christ. He's the Christ who this hymn sings about. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. 
I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. That's great. Lord Jesus, you are the king who is giving kingdom instruction to his people. And it is otherworldly instruction. You're telling us to live lives of poverty, spiritual poverty, lives of mourning and meekness, lives of, of laying down our earthly and fleshy, fleshly weapons, lives of being persecuted, all so that we can attract the very world that persecutes us to you. That is a high calling and one that we cannot possibly fulfill apart from your grace. Lord Jesus, we pray for a double portion of the Spirit. We pray for a double outpouring of your grace that we would be a people who through persecution, through beatings, through sufferings, through mourning, through meekness would attract people to you. Because, Lord, we know that we are the ones who persecuted you. We are the ones who, if we had been living, would have put you on the cross because we are in love with our sin and yet you died for us and won us to you and wooed us to you anyway. So let us be a people who continually continue to woo your enemies to you, to attract them, to win them, to lose every earthly battle that we might save some. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.